Today we talk to Municipal Court Judge, Central Judicial Processing Judge, Civil Commitment Judge, and very successful attorney, Phil Miller. He was raised in Ocean County, a Rutgers undergrad and Rutgers law guy, and I hope you find this really entertaining and really informative. We go pretty deep in the municipal court realm and the bail reform. Enjoy this interview with Phil Miller. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bold Sidebar Podcast, a podcast for lawyers, judges, and professionals serving clients. I am your host, Attorney Jeff Horn. My task is to interview the best of us to discover the tips, tricks, and techniques you need to serve your client and keep your sanity. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am sitting with Phil Miller. He is a lawyer for, I'm going to muffle this so no one hears how long he's been doing it, 35 <laughs> years. Also, a municipal court judge with other roles in the judiciary with this hybrid of private practitioner and uh, judge. And uh, you can't be a judge for 20 years unless you know what you're doing. You're highly respected in your community and in the practice. And Phil is both of those. And I'm sitting in his office and it's lovely. And I'm just happy to uh, sit here and chat with Phil for a little bit. Good afternoon, Phil. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for having me on your show, and I appreciate those uh, kind words of introduction. That's yeah, uh, just the tip of the iceberg. You'll you'll prove it when we get to chatting here. So let's just start where we start with the origin story. You're an Ocean County kid, and you've you've stayed and you've made good, as far as I'm concerned. Tell uh, us. I, I mean, I hope I've done well, but uh, yeah. So I'm Ocean County uh, born and raised. I was raised in Lakewood, born in Lakewood, and um, went through all the public schools there. And uh, honestly, the Lakewood story is pretty formative for me because Lakewood, as you know, is a pretty unique town. Um, It was a great, great place to grow up. Uh, Very, um, you know, a very diverse town, not just uh, ethnically and racially diverse, but socioeconomically. You know, there were really wealthy people that lived in Lakewood and people who had very little. And it all just seemed like we all just got along. You know, that's sort of how I remember it. Just had a really, really good time there. And, you know, being in a place like Lakewood, which is very diverse, uh, you know, I think it kind of stood me in good stead in later life um, because we're in a profession where we have to deal with people a lot. And you just you learn to deal with all types of different people. You know, Lakewood was it was very rural back then when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Yet it was, you know, still it was almost like an urban setting because it was so diverse. So it was a very interesting place to grow up. It, it was the mixture place. It really was the mixing place. Uh, and uh, it was the bus depot. If people came from New York or North Jersey, you know, I can remember a lot of times being at the bus. Like that was the place we would meet people and drop people off. And, uh, and it just had that feel, had that diverse feel in a, in a rural uh, rapper. It, it really was. And it was unique in that regard. And it was unique even within Ocean County, um, sure. you know, versus the other towns in Ocean County. But, you know, again, that's just it's kind of a big, uh, you, I'm sure you know other uh, people in the profession, you know, locally who are from Lakewood. And if you talk to them, they'll pretty much all tell you the same thing about what a great place it was growing up and how it really had an impact on us in, in later life. For sure. It's a story I've heard and, and you know, lived in part for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Where'd you get rolling after you got out of the Lakewood public school? Well, after I uh, finished uh, Lakewood high school, I went off to college. I, uh, little known fact, I actually started as a pre-med student, believe it or not. I went to Emory university, which is in Atlanta and uh, started as a pre-med student. Didn't quite pan out. Um, You know, when you you do calculus and you do chemistry and it's pretty hard, but by the time you get to like differential calculus and organic chemistry, at that stage of my life, wasn't quite ready for it. Um, (laughs) it. You know, Emory was a pretty competitive uh, university and a lot of kids had like gone to you know, prep schools, you know, they went to private boarding schools and they go to, and they knew how to study, 
you know, I was running around Lakewood with my hair on fire. So, you know, I never really, I did okay in school, but I, yeah. I didn't really learn how to study. So at that point, wasn't really quite ready for the competitive pre-med program. So um, when I left Emory, not really of my own volition, but it's probably a topic for a different uh, <laughs> different uh, broadcast, I uh, transferred up to Rutgers um, and suited me a lot better, you know, and, and in the long run, it's kind of one of those things that seemed to have happened to me throughout my life that sort of occurred to me, but ended up being really uh, to my benefit. Yeah. Um, I probably could have afforded to keep going to Emory, you know, and when I went to Rutgers being a state university, um, it was a lot more affordable. So, um, you know, and I wasn't, when I stopped being a pre-med student, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I was interested. I found the psychology class is pretty interesting. So I ended up being a psychology major. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that's also one of those, uh, majors that people are, oh, what are you going to do? You know, you're a psychology major, you can't do anything with right. that. You know, what, what are you going to do? And, um, <clears throat> I, you know, law school wasn't really on my radar uh, when I was an undergrad. Um, but I did actually have a, a something that happened, which was, was kind of sort of pushed it along. Um, so when I was at Rutgers in the 70s and 80s, the housing situation was not really good there. And a lot of students lived in you know, it's like decrepit housing that right. was in New Brunswick. And I was living in some place with a couple of guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. We moved out of there and the landlord kept our security deposit. And, uh, you know, as we didn't do anything. We couldn't have done anything to the place. You know, I, like I could have punched a hole in the wall and it would have been an improvement. You know, we didn't really do any damage. They just, you know, decided to keep our security right, deposit. Right. So we're like, we're not putting up with this. We're going to, you know, uh, file in court and try to get our security deposit back. So I ended up, you know, taking the lead on lead that. Counsel. Yeah. And I went to court and the landlord had an attorney, private counsel, and I was pro se. So I went up against this attorney and uh, I put a pretty good ass whipping actually on the guy, <laughs> you know. And then at some point, like we were chatting, he's like, you know, you're pretty good at this. You should think about going to law school. That's amazing. <laughs> so uh, sort of, you know, one of the things that sort of put the bug in my ear and uh you know, took the LSATs and did what it right. It's the LSATs. LSAT. I don't remember. LSAT. Yeah. So oh, I took yeah. the LSATs and did all right and ended up getting into uh, Rutgers Newark Law School. So you went oh, right from I college did. right into law school. I even did. Even though it wasn't number one in your mind Correct. before that experience. Correct. I mean, I was work. I always worked, you know, yeah. through high school. Well, prior, I guess I started working when I was 13. I've right. been working ever since, you know. I know you're um, a worker. That, there's no <laughs> doubt. No one disputes um, that. But uh, no, I, I didn't really take any time off. I just felt like if I was going to do this extra schooling, I wanted mm -hmm. to just get it done and start, you know, working for the right. most part. So I uh, went right into Rutgers uh, Newark, which was also very lucky for me because, you know, a lot of kids would, you know, went to Seton Hall, which was very expensive. You know, if you went to Rutgers Newark, you were getting just as good not to knock Seton Hall, but, you know, you're getting just as good in education, but it was much, much less expensive. You're getting mm -hmm. a lot more for your money. So I was fortunate to get in there and graduate. And uh, Then I was a clerk, yeah. uh, a judicial clerk in Ocean County, which I think you had the same experience. Yeah, it was the best. It, it really was. Um, also something that was very, very formative for me. Uh, I was very lucky to get that position. I... Um, we had a, a rotation system at that time. I don't know if that was still in effect when you did it or not. No. It was, yeah. Talk to that rotation. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, that was sort of apparently that was unique um, throughout our state. Uh, here in Ocean County, the judicial clerks were hired as like a group. And I think we were maybe like six of us. And we would be assigned to different divisions. But then every three months, we would rotate into a different division. So I started out, for instance, working for the criminal assignment judge, who's Judge Huber's, judge Huber. rest in peace, he rest passed peace. away. Yeah. Um, then I went over to Judge Giovine, and he was just switching from uh, civil to criminal at that time. If, as you know, he eventually became the criminal presiding judge. I clerked for Judge Dougherty, uh, also passed away. He was the civil presiding judge at the time. 
And then um, I'm sure you know Judge Fall very well. Yes. Uh, myself and Walter Must, who's my friend to this day and who also is now a Superior Court judge. We were Judge Fall's first law clerks. Ah, gotcha. So, so that was uh, that was a great year. Um, really, really. Uh, you know, even though I'm from Ocean County, I didn't have connections in the legal profession. You know, I didn't have family lawyers and right. so forth. So um, being a clerk was so fortunate for me. You know, the networking opportunities that you had, the learning opportunities. And with the rotation system, you had the exposure to every area of law and all the lawyers that worked in the different areas of law. That, so. That's great. I mean, that's a power rotation. I did not know uh, Judge Doherty, mm-hmm. but Judge Uber was still on the bench on a recall assignment when I came around. And yeah, he was on the bench till he was about 130. You're yeah. not kidding. A Harvard Law guy and Judge Giovine as well. And then Judge Fall was the presiding judge, then went to the active right. when I went into my clerkship. So, so yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, not just, you know, working with these judges, but the lawyers who would be in the courthouse. And back then, you know, this was 85. Right. Were a lot less lawyers. It was sort of at the beginning of the lawyer boom, I would say, right. back then. So you could, I mean, I really got to know like every lawyer in Ocean County that would come to court. Right. You know, and from you know a jobs from a jobs perspective, you know we all had our choice of jobs. You know, they would solicit us to to work. So it was it was very fortunate, and and you could stay in your community if you wanted to stay home. You could do that. Correct, and I think most of us. I I would say a lot of the Ocean County clerks, at least in that era, stayed in Ocean County. Yeah, I don't think that's the case much anymore. I mean, a few will stay, but Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them go to the far away. They come from far away also. Right, right. And that's, that's to me, it's very, I mean, not that everything has to be local, but sure. that I always looked at that at the time as an advantage. And that's also why, you know, I came back I when I was at school in Newark. I, I mean, I did have opportunities to work. I always worked when I was in school and, you know, I got right. job offers to work at big firms, but I, I sort of felt like I wanted to come back to Ocean County and also, I thought the clerkship would be sort of one more year of, you know, not really working that hard. <laughs> was that true? <laughs> Which, yes. <laughs> honestly, I, I it, honestly, it was. I mean, I, you know, it was it was a fun year. Yeah. Um, you had to work, but it wasn't, uh, you know, a crazy amount of work. I remember I would, if you remember where, um, for instance, where Judge Huber was in the, um, that's okay. Sorry about that technology failure on my part, Phil. That's a, Uber, take two. That's okay. And it uh, probably threw me off my funny story. But oh, no. no. Uh, he, so, you know, the clerk would sit in a little office that was right off the judge's chambers. And um, I spent a pretty good part of the day just kind of running around the courthouse and, you know, trying to meet people and talk to people, but I always made sure because I knew that Judge Huber would leave at 4.30. At about 4.20, I'd get myself back to that little office and sit there. And then when he would leave, he would see me sitting there, you know, (laughs) thinking that I had been working diligently all day. So Judge Huber, I'm sorry in the afterlife, you know, Um, but I, you know, there are no complaints. We, you know, we, we got along, we got along well. And all of the, all of the clerkship rotations, you know, for me, were very, very enjoyable. I don't want to, this is your show, but my Judge Uber story, I may have told it before. I'm clerking, my judge is on vacation, Judge Uber's back, and he's handling a probate calendar, guardianships, and I ask if I can sit in, and, and he says, sure, and he explains it to me in the back with his actual clerk, and then we go out, and I'm sitting all the way to the side in just a stray chair, because I'm not really part of the show. And about halfway through the morning, he points to me and asks someone else, who's that guy sitting over there? You know? <laughs> this is towards the end of his service on the bench. Uh, but he was really, really super. Even though besides besides that lapse there, he was running the show. I mean, he was 80 years older or I don't know how old he was, but he really he was, worked. I mean, well. I... I I mean, he obviously seemed old when I clerked for him. <laughs> right. I, I don't know what his age was, but it's funny that you mentioned that because he uh, he had the reputation of not really interacting that much with his clerks. 
he would read all of his own stuff. He would do all of his own research. Uh, he would have you write up motions, mm-hmm. but I think he's tended to sort of ignore what you did for him. <laughs> you know, he would read transcripts on appeals and just do it all himself because that's how he was. Right, right. But there was a particular case and it involved, um, it was a pretty high profile case and there were state troopers involved who were being prosecuted and there was a suppression motion involved in the case. I won't get into all the details, but I, you know, I sat in court and, um, and it was one thing he told me, he's like, if you're going to come into court, make sure you put your jacket on. So what he, that was the advice he gave me. It was a good piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So I would sit there and I would listen and, you know, we'd be on breaks and I would talk to him about this motion and he and I were seeing it differently. And I talked to him a little bit about it. And I remember him very specifically saying, Miller, goes, you're changing my mind about this. He goes, I want you to write the opinion and I'm going with your view. And I was I was so happy. And I wrote an opinion. And judge at the end of the motion, he got up on the bench and he read the opinion that I wrote verbatim. And it was a it was a major, major deal at the time because it involved, you know, long term officers and their careers and everything. And I was so proud and he got 100 percent reversed on appeal. (laughs) So, uh, yes, it didn't really pan out. So probably he sort of, you know, (laughs) validated the view that he didn't depend on his clerks that much. But, uh, you know, I I thought I I thought I was right. But you know what what it does? It goes back to the Rutgers. um, landlord tenant dispute that you, you, you know you fought the guy and then you, you've kind of fought for what you thought was right mm-hmm. and uh, look if we have to guarantee that we're right all the time we're not going to do much we're going to stay on our shell right right and not only that the plus with being in that rotation system by the time that opinion <laughs> came down I was on to a new rotation oh, right so you could blame another <laughs> clerk you know as far as you know maybe it was Walter Musk who did that opinion <laughs> Um, so yeah, I kind of skated out on that, but but the clerkship, clerkship was great. Clerkship was great. A lot of fond memories of that. And it really helped me a lot going forward. Cause I, then I, I started practicing. I knew all the attorneys, you know, I was dealing with people that I knew personally Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot. You know, I used to keep copies of stuff like that was a big thing. I always sort of pictured myself working in a smaller firm, always thinking that, you know, if the time came. I would have, you know, a trade. I could, I could start practicing on my own, you know, because, you right. know, you go to law school and you learn about cases and stuff, but nobody teaches you how to, you know, file a complaint and start right. a lawsuit and, you know, logistically get that stuff done. Um, so I used to look at, you know, people's motions, their complaints, their answers, their briefs, and I would copy stuff. This is, you know, prior to computer days, I yeah. would photocopy stuff and put it in loose leaf binders and i had so when i started practicing i had all this stuff which i pilfered from other attorneys yes and which honestly if you went in my office i think the books are still in there (laughs) you know i should probably you know not really looking at them for a while but you know that's what i did and it really you know in hindsight really helped me a lot and i will echo that because judge o'brien tom o'brien who i clerked for encouraged me to do that Mm -hmm. and although we were mostly in family at the end we were in civil and that's when the game really changed. I mean, family, had, we have laws in family court, but there's a lot of other stuff. Once you got to civil, these fat packs, these summary judgment motions, these really interesting uh, legal issues were briefed by really smart guys. And I said, wow, this is great. And I made a lot of copies and it really served me for probably five years of my practice. I would go back to those. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I did. And, you know, you, obviously you don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the law is the same. Somebody good did a good job writing it. I don't right. think it's copyrighted. You probably know better it's, than it me. It is but, not copyrighted. So, uh, funny you say that because when I first started to practice also, I said, oh, man, I'm plagiarizing everything. <laughs> and, and I asked people, and they're like, if you don't do it the way it was done last time, you're getting nowhere for your client. So we, we rely upon certain strictures to work within, right? To, to get things done in the law. Right. And I guess if you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> Not Don't plagiarize stuff. crappy stuff. That's another thing Judge O'Brien would say. He would point to papers and, and give a thumbs up or a thumbs down before there was social media. And he would give a thumbs down if something was sort of a BS argument that someone made 
or a bad set of papers. And so it was, it was very formative, mm -hmm. as, you, as you say. All right. So you get through that one last fun year or, or low work or light work. That's year. exactly and it. And then time to that. face the music and, and, <laughs> and actually get a job. So right. um, I worked for uh, an attorney by the name of Kevin Kelly, who you may recall, he was um, pretty well known. He had a really good reputation. He was um, well known through as a as a assistant prosecutor. He was pretty much the lead trial attorney there. He prosecuted the Marshall uh, murder trial, which, as you know, ended up being a book bestseller as well as a TV movie. Right. Um, and uh, he was partners with uh, Barbara Villano at the time, and she eventually became a superior court judge. So when I went to work for them, it was Kelly and Villano. Oh. And uh, I was the only associate. And uh, not that long after, can't really recall how many years into it, but the two of them split up. And it was like a custody case. And I ended up with Kevin. Kevin got <laughs> custody of me. Um, That's a great so, <laughs> It's exactly what happened. And, and, and now Judge Vallon would have got on the bench pretty soon. Fairly soon yeah. thereafter, within yeah. the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, I worked with Kevin. And, and, you know, again, it was right after this. A case had occurred and he had a, a, a pretty, he had a really good reputation. He was a great, great trial attorney. And, um, you know, we had a really good business. We had a really good business. We did, it was a general practice, but with emphasis on litigation. Right. So um, did that for a few years and, you know, then it became Kelly and Miller. And um, after that, we hired uh, Patricia Rowe, who, you know, also eventually became a judge and became the uh, I guess, what was she, the presiding matrimonial judge? She's been a presiding, presiding family judge, presiding I should say. family. She's done a turn in the appellate division. Now she's in chancery and, uh, and close. By the time we actually broadcast this, I believe she'll be retired. That's correct. Just right. About. So her retirement dinner is, is coming up, I yeah. believe. So, but yeah, so we, we, um, this is again, very fortunate for me because, um, I'm not to knock your profession. I never liked handling matrimonial <laughs> matters, but as the associate, you don't really have a choice in right. what you're going to do. So, um, Kevin hired Pat, you know, and then the firm was Kelly Miller and Rowe. Um, and she handled all the matrimonial and she actually had her own sort of matrimonial practice when she came in. Um, and, I didn't really care other than I didn't have to do it. Right. So right. that was, that was a big plus for me. <laughs> so, you know, I did other stuff. I did civil and criminal litigation. Right. And you're right. Pat Rowe went on to be a very prominent matrimonial practitioner, now judge, now about to be retired judge. And Judge Volano went on and, and she ran the criminal and the juvie in the county mm -hmm. for a while. Also family uh, one quick Judge Volano story, real sure. quick. It's your, again, it's your show, but I, we know so many of the same people. So I have a family case in front of Judge Volano. I do a motion. She, she says, denied, but I'm going to give you a hearing. Next thing you know, I get an order that says, you're done. You, you know, I'm granting custody contrary to your client side. So I file an appeal. And then I have it on the record. I'm getting a hearing. So Judge Volano, so solid, she gets a hold of my cell phone and she calls me. And she says, you know, I did tell you I'm giving you a hearing. Withdraw the appeal and I will give you the hearing. Now, I don't think judges do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But that was so, she found me on vacation, in fact. She says, no, I, I can't do this. And we had a hearing. We had a, we had a full trial just as she promised. You know, my client got what they were entitled to. They still lost, but they got what they were entitled to, due process. And I really so respected that, that she took that step. Right. I mean, she was, you know, very well respected as an attorney and a judge. And uh, so it was kind of, I guess I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but I was working with sort of these like giants of the profession in our, you know, you at were. least in our county. Um, and it was, it was fortunate for me. I don't know if you know this, but so she was an assistant county prosecutor. And you may recall back in the day, the assistant county prosecutors were part time. So you could have a practice 
And also, I think it was once every one week, every three weeks, you would work as a county prosecutor. And that's what Kevin did. And that's what Barbara did. They both worked for Prosecutor Turnback. And Prosecutor Turnback put the two of them together, said, why don't the two of you form a practice together? So he, you know, uh, Judge Turnback was a big mentor to Kevin. Yes. Who obviously in turn was was a mentor to me. Literally this morning I was talking about him. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how far his shadow cast. Right. He's been retired mm-hmm. for a lot of years, but he's still around. He is. He is. Uh, well, this this is a great walk down memory mm-hmm. lane. Let's let's keep rolling here. So you have all these all this alphabet soup of different partners, and then what happens? Right. Well, it wasn't that many when you think about it. It was Kelly and, and Roe and me, and yeah. that was it. Yeah. So yeah. all right. So at some point, <laughs> Kevin. Um, who had done very well and really liked to be out of the office, wanted to retire. And um, if you ever get a chance to, to talk to uh, Judge Rowe about this, we laugh about this to this day. And I won't get into all the details, but Kevin wanted us to buy him out of his practice. Um, you know, sort of a logistical thing that, you know, attorneys do back and forth and, mm-hmm. you know, Pat and I are looking at each other. It's like, why, why would, you know, and he wanted some astronomical sum of money for us to buy his practice. And he had a, we had a great practice and it was him, you know, it was really him. He was the rainmaker there for years. And um, <clears throat> admittedly, I mean, we all did our part, but sure. you know, he really, he really, you know, brought in the, the lion's share and he wanted this like astronomical amount of money for us to, buy him out of his practice and we're thinking like when well, how is this going to work we're going to give him all this money and then he's going to be gone and then you know it's just as if we had our own firm so it just it didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to us and you know we both declined to do it and you know it wasn't hard feelings but not that long after that i think pat left she may have formed a partnership with think with Russ Churkos, who's now also a judge. Everybody, apparently everybody's a (laughs) judge that I've met, including myself. So uh, she left and then Kevin and I kind of split off and uh, I opened my own firm. And I think this was still in the early 90s. Yeah. So I opened my own firm. And uh, again, sort of a thing that I wasn't planning and backed into it, but, you know, turned out to be great for me because I've, I've been a sole practitioner ever since. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's worked well for me, but working in that firm, I will tell you, it was a very, very, I learned how to operate a firm, you know, right. which again, something that you don't learn in law school, right? If, um, or if you go to a big firm, you know, they hand you files and you go and do whatever, you don't learn the business of it and you don't right. learn how to bring in clients and how to keep clients and, you know, how to maintain accounts and trust accounting and paying salaries and whatever you have to do and paying your rent or owning a building. So I got a lot of that from Kevin, right. you know, and then when I opened my own firm, um, you know, I was able to logistically do it knew how to do it. And then it's just a question of, you know, staying afloat. Yes. So, um, but you know, somehow it works and been able to to do it ever since. You were a natural with people. So you're going to get your referrals because of who you were. And now you have a lot of experience and even more contact and relationships. And everyone around you was a star judges. Kevin was TV star, you know, not himself as a TV star, but his, his story uh, Well, as you may recall, Kevin was the only character in the, what was the name of the book? Blind Faith. He was the only character in the book who allowed the author, Joe McGinnis, who, by the way, got involved in a plagiarism scandal down the road. I don't know if you ever recall that or read it yet. Look it up. Google that one uh, because we were talking about plagiarism before. So, um, But in any event, so Joe McGinnis was the author of, of this book, Blind Faith. And Kevin allowed him to use his real name in the book. Oh, right. So if you have a copy of Blind Faith, you'll see that yes. all of the names are fictitious of right. all the people that, you know, we knew the Tom's right. River people involved in this case. But Kevin was the only one that allowed uh, McGinnis to use his real name, which he did. Right. So that was that was kind of a unique thing. Mm. But, you know, I guess it was a good marketing help. Um, yeah. You know, we got a lot of business. For sure. For sure. So 
So you eventually you moved. You sort of switched sides of the county, if you will. I did. So, you know, I, I, growing up in Lakewood and then, you know, afterwards I, I lived in Brick uh, for some period of time. And um, I think it was about the time, um, well, I know it was about the time uh, we'd had our first daughter. We were getting ready to have our second daughter and um, yeah, our house was really small. You know, it was a nice area in Brick. Um but it was a really small house and we either would have had to like expand our house and, and move. And actually it came to Barnegat. I was representing somebody, um, obviously before I got my judgeship. So I was representing somebody who got in trouble, who was actually somebody from my hometown and it was in Barnegat. And I came down here to go to represent him in the Barnegat Municipal Court. And I got here a little bit early. And I started driving around. I'm like, you know, this is is sort of a nice little town. And uh, next thing you know, we bought a house here. And I've been been living down here ever since. Oh, I didn't know what the order of events was. I got it. So you made it home. And uh, now at that point, had you had some government appointments already working? I did. I did. Pretty minor. You know, know, when you're a sole practitioner, if you can get some governmental appointments to supplement your private practice that's really you know the optimum thing if you, if you can do that um so i had done some you know kind of conflict public defender work conflict prosecutor work uh that kind of stuff and it was sort of tangentially involved and so yet another thing that i fell into um i when we moved to barnegat i contacted the township attorney, Barnegat township attorney, you know, you know, are there any, are you looking for a public defender? Are you looking for, you know, a backup prosecutor or whatever? Right. He's like, all right, I'll get back to you. And about a week later, he calls up. He's like, you want to be a judge? Really? It's kind of a, yeah, it kind of threw me off. It wasn't yeah. really something that I was expecting that I had been pursuing. And uh, like, okay, let me think about that. Right. You know, it's really... Uh, sort of threw me threw me off a little bit, and you know, to to starting as a municipal court judge, municipal court judgeships are very unique in our profession for a lot of reasons. Once you do that, first of all, you're conflicted out of doing a lot of work. Obviously, right. you can't uh, do any criminal defense work at the time. I had a fairly decent criminal defense municipal court practice, so were I to become a judge uh, in the one town for, you know, not really a lot of money in terms right. of salary, I, I was giving up a lot more financially than I'd be gaining by taking the judgeship. you be conflicted out in the whole state? Correct. You yeah. cannot do any criminal defense work in New Jersey. You can't represent people before, you know, certain kinds of boards. Um, you know, if you do a matrimonial practice, you know, you can't be involved in domestic violence matters because we're, you know, we're granting domestic violence restraining orders right. in those cases. It's a, it's a pretty big, you know, unless your practice is completely removed from that. Um, right. You know, for me, it was a big leap of faith yeah. to do that because I was giving up a lot more income than I would have been getting from the judgeship. And I was, I remember I was sort of leaning against not doing it. And the mayor called me, um, and I had just met her briefly, the mayor of Barnegat, and she called me up, and she said, you should do this, you know, you're you know, still a young guy, and yeah. it's a really good thing, you know, even if you only do it for a couple years, because the terms are three years, as, as you probably know. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It's a resume builder for you. And she sort of talked me into really? it, and I said, you know, all right, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so that was, you know, a three-year term, and... 21 years later or whatever, I'm still doing it. Wow. So, so yeah, that's, that's how that occurred. Where are you in your term now? You have a three year term. When did it start? In, you mean, as we sit here today? Yeah. Oh, so, um, I, uh, I think I am up later next, uh, later this year, as a matter of fact, now that I mentioned it, it's sort of lost track. Yeah. I've been reappointed in Barnegat about seven times. It's it's pretty unique. It really is. It is. And you've survived different political regimes as well. Correct. Correct. And the towns where I've, where I sit and have sat, um, it's been both sides of the aisle. And I've been pretty fortunate in that regard to be able to, you know, keep the positions. I mean, one time I had five towns at right. once. I think that was the most I had at one time. Well, I, I, again, I'll 
put the feather in your cap because to my way of looking at things, that's not how it goes. Each team has a fair haired child that they put in. Oh, we got this job. So now this person will be the judge and this person will be a prosecutor and public defender. And there's a team. So it's like, uh, you don't, you don't, you don't trade between the Mets and the Yankees, you know? So the fact that you've kept it, it says something you've had an approach that must be somewhat different from some of your colleagues, not to knock anybody. We have a great uh, municipal court bench. I know all the players and that they're great people and great lawyers and judges, but there must be some reason that you've, you've sort of worked both sides of the, of the aisle, if you will. I guess to some extent, I, I wouldn't give myself too much credit for that <laughs> only because I, I, my main thing is I just sort of, I mean, you don't probably read about me in the paper, you know, right. I, I just, and, and, and that's what it is in these towns. Um, the municipal courts are a separate entity from the town and that's, they're very careful about that for, you know, they're not really, the, the township is not really supposed to have influence over the municipal court. Although we have to depend on them to pay our salaries and appoint us, you know, when your our appointments staff, your right. space. So, so it's a real, yeah, it's a real catch 22 yeah. there. Um, but having said that, you know, in most of these towns, the best municipal court is, is, is a court they don't hear about, right? You don't have, people are, you know, complaining or there's issues within the court, there's issues within staffing. So if you sort of, you know, just take care of your business and, and run the court, the towns are going to be happy. Now, having said that, even so, if politics change, you know, you, you, you could be out of a job. So it doesn't necessarily always help you, um, but it can help you. Right. Well, I, I think I have this right. Correct me if I've got it wrong. That even, even though you are separate from a town, you're not a town agency. You're not a department in the town. Uh, in some ways, for lots of folks, the municipal court may be the only face of the town they ever have to see especially people from out of town, right? But even the regular person in town, besides paying their property taxes and getting their trash picked up, it, it may be that experience that shapes their view of how the town is run. That's absolutely true. And, and taking that one step further, um, a lot of times, you know, people will say that the municipal bench is the face of the judiciary because, most people who have some experience in a court, it's going to be in a municipal court, right? A lot more yes. people are going to a municipal court than they're going to a superior court or, right. or you know, a higher level court. So um, we're sort of the face of the judiciary in that regard. Uh, people look at me, you know, I look at myself, I'm a municipal judge, you know, but other people look at me like I'm a real judge. Judge is right, a judge. And, right. So at least certainly in, in people's eyes. So you know, again, I, you know, I, I just try to carry that out. You know, yeah. people have a certain expectation that you're going to, you know, be a certain way and, and, you know, semi know what you're doing and, and treat them a certain way. And am I perfect at that? No, but I, I strive for it. I really do. Yeah. And I mean, most of us do. Most no, of us do. There's no it, question. It comes across. I mean, I'm not a municipal court practitioner, but from time to time I've been in municipal court and seen how it is. And I call it a show because, because of the people that come in. Uh, come in from all walks of life. So there's a people watching element. I've taken my son mm. and his friend and just said, just just sit here and watch what's happening inside of here. It's a whole world out there that they haven't been exposed to, and here it is. It's so true. For me, I get to pick my clients. They contact us, and then we have a dating process mm. before we come in. When you're the municipal court judge in particular, versus perhaps superior court, civil judges, look, certainly people come, but they're sort of voluntarily coming, right? When they're coming in for a family case, mm. they need child support, they need a divorce, they have a civil matter, they have an injury, they have an estate. You know, they're sort of walking toward it. Whereas the municipal court, no one's walking toward it. They're being sucked in by a governmental agency, the police saying, here, come inside of here. And you have no control over those people, the, the township PD, the state police, the county, whoever's forcing the people to you. You know, it's a different animal. It, it is. It's very true. And, you know, you have to think about that sometimes. I mean, it's you want to do a job where, you know, you're dealing with people who are going to be pleased with what you're doing. Right. That's what we do. And we right. want to do a good job. 
municipal court, nobody's liking me. You know, I know that, right? It's, uh, you know, they're there. It's not a fun day. Um, right. And there's only so much that I can do to make it better, you know, which is pretty much nothing. It's, you know, it's, it's starting out bad and usually going downhill. Um, and I understand that. So that's sort of a, it's sort of a difficult part of the job. Honestly, that's, that's one of the things, you know, I know that you're a matrimonial practitioner. I will tell you what always bothered me about doing matrimonial work is that you could do the best job in the world for people. But you have to remember that uh, at the end of the day, people are getting divorced and they're unhappy. Right. Right. So you're dealing with this general unhappiness and you could do a fantastic job, but they don't really realize it. No. And so I always found that difficult. Yeah. And honestly, I would represent criminal defendants or municipal court defendants and, you know, they're facing X, Y and Z and they walk out of there getting A, B and C something. And and it's a good outcome for them and they're happy with me and they appreciated that. So I, you know, I like that part of the practice Um, and the municipal court, you know, who's, who's happy there. Very few people, very few people. But the experience, and again, me as a lawyer who has done some, but not a ton, it's Mm -hmm. not my day to day. I see the experience of people who have been treated fairly by the prosecutor and then they've been efficiently gotten in and Mm -hmm. out. The staff, hasn't been harsh to them. The judge hasn't been harsh to them. You know, they pay their fines, they lick their wounds, and they walk out, right? I mean, that's most of the folks are going to come through. They may not be happy, but if they've been treated fairly, they have nothing to gripe about, you know? And, and that's true, and that's that's a really big part of it, you know, having a good staff in municipal court, as and, you know, as a, as a practitioner, you know, you deal with certain staffs who treat you a certain way, you deal with other staffs who treat you differently, um, so it's real, real important to us in the municipal courts in terms of how our staffs treat people who come in. Right. And it's not easy sometimes. Well, people no. can be extremely, extremely difficult. And, you know, how much do you have to take sometimes? A man that I convicted recently and came, went out to his car and came back with bags of quarters to pay hundreds of dollars in fines, (laughs) you know, things like that, you know, just, and, um, I don't know what made me think of that, but I just recall it, but I just remember when that, that happened, you know, I know that my, my, my court, I should say my, the court staff in Boring, they treated him with respect and took his quarters and thank you very much, sir. And, (laughs) you know, he's trying to, to have a result. Yes. And it didn't work for sure. him. His act of defiance, he thought mm-hmm. you guys wouldn't take it. Right. And then he can, he can parlay this into some, some dust up. They took it. I assume these are not rolled quarters. It was not rolled. <laughs> it was not rolled. And, oh, and apparently they were very dusty and dirty quarters as well. Um, but, you know, that's just a, sort of a silly example. But, you know, again, treating people like that, it, you're absolutely right. It, it's as good as it can get. And how I treat people, you know, or try to treat people. Um, Am I perfect at it all the time? No, it's sometimes it's hard. You know, it's it's hard when you get to your hundredth case in a day, (laughs) right? It's difficult. Um, I'd like to tabulate all the cases you've handled at one point, you know, you're five towns, you're handling some maybe hundred cases in a week or more. Well, to get an idea. So I think that you would estimate the municipal courts in New Jersey handle uh in the range of seven million cases per year oh my god yeah that's almost one per person right here right but it's funny you mentioned that because so many people have so many of the cases (laughs) you know the same people that we you know we we tend to see over and over um you know they really get it they get a pretty good percentage of it yeah but there's (laughs) yeah i think there's there's um about seven million cases a year handled in the new jersey that is astonishing for our little state our fourth smallest state seven million Mm -hmm. cases that is unbelievable and with all more or less part-time judges handling it 
Correct. Some there's sometimes so you know if you're in I think Camden and Newark, Trent, they have sure. full time municipal and more than one judge right. on the bench. Right. So those are full time positions, and there are certain of the bigger towns where it's it's almost like a full time position mm-hmm. where you might be sitting at least a couple of days a week. Um, and as you know, we're also on call twenty four seven three sixty five, which is a very difficult part of the job yeah. as well. You guys are on call for. Restraining order cases, bail, things like that? Correct. Not so much bail anymore yeah. since we've had bail reform. Let, let's speak um, to that bail reform. Sure. I was checking out your resume you shared with me, and I was checking out your website also, Bill, and I see this Central Judicial Processing Court. I wasn't familiar with that jargon. All right. Talk so ma- many people are not because it's it's actually a relatively new court, if you want to call it a court. So as you know, a couple of years ago, New Jersey uh, instituted a system of bail reform where we're trying to move away from monetary bail um, because of the you know inherent unfairness of that, where somebody who's wealthy can get themselves out of jail pretrial or somebody who doesn't have the money may be sitting there in jail pretrial. And that's you know initially not what bail is for, right? Bail is just to ensure that people appear in court, right? Primarily. Right. Um, so, you know, because of that unfairness, we instituted a bail reform system where now instead of setting monetary bails, um, there's a formula that's used. If you've heard of the PSA, the PSA a is a bit. system. It's not the thing that we're, you know, having to do with your, <laughs> I, I guess, I your prostate or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> incorrect, incorrect uh, PSA. So the PSA, as pertains to bail reform, it's, it's based on a formula. And if someone is arrested, um, they use a, a system of identification through fingerprints, but not the old fashioned, you know, ink fingerprints. It's, mm. it's, you know, an electronic system and they immediately get a certain amount of information about people. And the information has to do with their prior record, prior failures to appear, you know, things along that nature. And a number comes out, a number pops up. And based on that number, a determination is made whether the person is going to be released on a summons or they're going to be issued a warrant and going to be transported to jail. So if in fact they're uh, transported to jail, they're entitled to a hearing within 48 hours. And if uh, the prosecutor's office wants them to stay in jail, um, they have to move for that. And they're entitled to a detention hearing and the uh, state has to show why they should remain in jail. If not, then they're going to be released. So getting all, you know, that whole story leads to what CJP court is. So because of the reform system, many more people who were charged with mostly lower level third or fourth degree criminal offenses, where in the past they would have been possibly in jail, they're going to be on the street. They're going to be at liberty. And those people need to have an arraignment within a short period of time to sort of get the process started. You know, then they're applying for the public defender. Then the matter is listed for status conferences. So CJP court is basically just first appearances or arraignments. And it's one of the courts where they allow a municipal court to do it. So even though I sit in the superior court in Tom's River and it's, a, you know, I'm hearing these superior court level matters. I'm able to do it as a municipal judge. So let me get my head around this, right? right? I, I've been practicing a long time. Was that a bad explanation? It was a great explanation, right. but I want to just get a little granular. If you're the Barnegat Township Municipal Court judge, you're sitting in Barnegat Township. This is actually you're sitting in the Superior Court building or you're sitting home in Barnegat Township? No, this is, this is done in Tom's River okay. in the Superior Court. Um, obviously, because I'm not a Superior Court judge, I don't have my own courtroom there. Okay. So they'll assign me to various courtrooms where they have availability. Like this morning I was there, I was in the arbitration room, which is in the basement. Right. But sometimes it's in historic courtroom number one. That's um, nice. Yeah, so you feel real fancy sitting in that there. Fancy. Um, or if a judge is on vacation, you know, they may just use a, a random courtroom. But that's where it's held. Okay. So it is, has nothing to do really with your constituency 
in Barnegat. Correct. Anyone Correct. Although, in the county. Same people. So I it's see the same the people. Same I know them. It is the same. <laughs> many of the same customers. They know me. And I, and it's kind of funny because I see the look sometimes on people's, you know, they're in municipal court. They go to Tom's River. It's like, oh, this won't be that bad. It's like, oh, no, there's Judge Miller again. It's like, why is he here? I can tell the look that comes, you know, over their face that they have to see me again. And sometimes I see people multiple times in a week. Because oh of that, I do. I do. I do. I was a few a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I sat in uh, Ocean Township, Weartown, on a Tuesday, Barnegat on a Wednesday, and then CJP Court on a Thursday. And I saw one guy in all three courts. Oh my! He had to appear in all three courts, and I said something to him. It's like I even tried to make it. I'm like, Mister So and So, this is unprecedented. I'm seeing you three times. You know. And he just kind of stared at me. He was not, he did not find it amusing, I guess, the way I thought it was right. kind of coincidental. But, um, so that's a yeah. different appointment then. Because it is. The three year appointment that you have in a township is, is supposed to be somewhat apolitical. That's why it's a Correct. three year, so it's not every year right. turning over. You want to have some, some uh, sense that there's an independence there. So this is another independent, completely independent uh, role as well. So who's the appointing authority for the CJP? Well, uh, we, you know, there's there's more than CJP. There's also uh, a couple of municipal judges who do detention hearings. So essentially, we volunteered to do it, and it kind of fell out that I had that day available. Um, but you are appointed by your assignment judge to do that oh, work. Oh, understood. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. I know we have a little time sensitivity. So uh, no problem. Let's... Let's talk about your, your, your day job, your regular practice, because okay. we really got deep in the muni court, and I love your <laughs> sharing with that. It was really important. I, it's important for me, and, and hopefully the audience uh, gets, that, gets that feel as well. So day job is litigator, still litigating cases. Probably over the years, not as much, right. honestly, because of the municipal judgeships. You know, it's hard, you know, if I had to do a trial that would take a week, right. I'm not able to do it because I sit in municipal court uh, pretty much every week, at least, oh, uh, you know, at least a couple of days. So as a result of that, over the years, my practice has become a lot more, you know, transactional, if you will. Right. Um, I do a lot of estate planning, a lot of estate uh, administration, uh, real estate work, uh, some business litigation. Right. Um, I do some workers' compensation because uh, that sort of works out in terms of, you know, gelling okay with my so that's schedule. that's the plaintiff side. That's correct. Okay. And, um, you know, that's that's basically it. I, I've always, you know, because of the other work, um, I, I purposely kind of keep my practice small. Sure. You know, I don't really advertise a lot. Um, but, you know, I've been here for a long time and word of mouth, yeah. you know, um, I have a decent clientele, but I don't. You know, I, I, I don't really, you know, you won't see, I have a website, but you won't see me all over the right. internet, you know, plugging into these different sites that gotcha. I guess give you better right. algorithms to, to get heard. But so that's what I do. It's, it's mostly transactional at this point. Right, right. And now we were talking about the uh, empty nest. Right. Uh, kids are mm -hmm. about, they're in college, grad school, and, and, and about to be uh, completely uh, uh, fluttering their wings. Leaving yourself, we were joking. We're both married for a long time, joking about uh, the uh, the sort of empty nest. And uh, you were sharing with me that your wife has found. Uh, oh, I was gonna, I was going to say almost two careers now, right? She has a day job. She does. She works in retail, and um, she's also an artist. And in recent years, she's begun you know, sort of developing a business around her artwork and she sells it and she sells it online and she'll sell it at, at festivals and so forth. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's beautiful stuff. People love it. I, you know, it's not, I'm not retiring on that at this point. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not happening. No, you know, knock on, knock on her. It's, no, it's no. great that she does that. But, um, so, you know, well, that's we a nice thing. She, it. you know, she, she stays occupied with that. She sure does. We were looking at it online. I was wowed by it. We were finding, mm -hmm. Um, Laura Miller's work, Laura Miller at Fine Art America. Right? Yeah, that's can, what, that's yes. what we were looking at some of her pieces. Yes. And I, I was like, I have no talents whatsoever. <laughs> my my uh, father told me, well, that's why you become a lawyer. Right. Okay, you know, that's a little backhanded mm -hmm. compliment. Um, 
And uh, so how do people find you, Phil? Uh, well, I, I do have a website. It's actually bornagatlawyer.com. All right, I like that. So uh, there's not a lot of lawyers down here, I guess. So I was able to, to get a hold of that domain name. Um, but uh, my private office is here in Barnegat. Um, I've been here, you know, many years and um, you can look me up, check me out online. And um, if you have some legal work in the realm that I've talked about, be happy to help people you're, with you're it. You're too humble. Um, that's for darn sure. Uh, so one thing I like to ask at the end, and not to give you too much prep time, is what I'll call the big ask, mm-hmm. right? The big ask is, you could be in charge, I give you the baton, you're in charge of judge and lawyer and client world for just a minute or 90 seconds. What would be your big ask of all of us? Well, I'm going to be pretty specific with it. Obviously, I've thought about this because I did listen to a couple of your oh, podcasts. You yeah, no, I did. And so I kind of I knew it was coming. Thank you. I knew it was coming. Um, you know, a big problem in municipal courts is the handling of domestic violence related matters and you know something that you're familiar with obviously in in your practice and i've always felt that well let me backtrack a little bit i mean it's a big emphasis for us you know we have a lot of training as municipal court judges and there's mandatory training there's actually statutes that require we get a certain amount of hours of training in domestic violence related matters and, you know, in recognition of things and understanding, obviously, the cycle of violence. And it's because there's such an emphasis because it's such a problem. But the bigger problem to me is that in municipal courts, we're not really that well equipped to handle it. Um, you know, people come in, you've been in municipal courts, so you know, you know, the system, you know, there could be hundreds of people in there. And, you come in and maybe, you know, you're, you're a victim in a matter and you stand in line to speak to the prosecutor and it's not private and, you know, you're telling them your position and, you know, the defendant is in the court with, and it's, it's just a very, very difficult situation. And the huge majority of these cases end up either being dismissed, you know, or pled down and it's not the best result and it doesn't protect people. And I've always felt that if, you know, we're serious about trying to address this problem, that these cases should be heard in the Superior Court. Um, And this obviously sounds very self-serving because I would take it off my plate and, you know, put it on someone else's plate. You know, I understand that. But, you know, in Superior Court, they have the resources. You know, there there are victims advocates that can, you know, that are there that can work with people and, you know, um, a probation department that's going to do maybe a pre-sentence report. Um, and, you know, a lot of times in municipal court, it's just we're not set up for that. Right. And it's sad to me to, to see that because I don't like to see cases that are not, you know, I do the best I can, but we're all working within these limitations. Does that make that any sense really, to you? That's a, that is probably the most sharp pointed big mm-hmm. ask I've had really and it's insightful and I was just thinking about it because you have space limitations you have ingress and egress in the municipal courts we're not built for that we're at not all. it's not built for that it's not built for that and you know is this ever going to happen in my career or my lifetime <laughs> probably not because of you know obviously there's monetary constraints sure. there's other reasons you know does the prosecutor's office want to take all these cases on of course they don't um but that that's always my thought and i don't even know if that's something i'm really supposed to be saying you know no, I get um, it. I get it's, it. well, it's, a, it's a policy issue and in the superior court now a big effort is made to keep the plaintiffs and defendants segregated mm-hmm. in the courthouse so you don't have those little dust-ups. But a lot of these small towns have a tiny little court and a tiny little parking lot, and there's one in and out. And uh, it would be uh, really a, a smart policy move to not force the people back into those small spaces and, and let something bad happen or just get a bad, um, a bad result because the justice is not number one, the mechanics are. It's true. And it's just logistically, it's, it's very, very hard. And, you know, having said what I said, you know, I, people do try 
to do a good job yeah. with these cases. You know, it's prosecutors do care about these cases. Um, and it's not for me to say, you know, a case should end up one way or the other because, you know, I'm an impartial party in this, right? I'm not on the victim side. Sure. I'm not on the defendant side. That That's not my role there. But I, I've just always felt that, you know, if we really want to address the problem, and it is a problem, as you know, it's an epidemic problem. It really is. Um, you know, then you would need those extra resources. And if you heard the case in Superior Court, um, it could be addressed the way that it should be addressed. Because even though these cases maybe are disorderly person's offenses, you know, God forbid, it's the disorderly person's offense that's a precursor of something more serious down the road. Oh, that is a great big ask. It's a big policy issue you addressed, and I think you hit it really hard. All right, we're going to wrap up. Phil, thank you so much for hosting. Uh, BarnegatLawyer.com, check it out. Fine Art America, Laura Miller, check that out. Give another plug. Thanks so much for the time, and always a pleasure. My pleasure as well, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Hey, everybody. It's Jeff again. Need to find us? Check us out on the web at hornlawgroup.net or give us a call at 732-736-9300. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like The Bold Sidebar and our guests, please Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Pass it on to your friends who might be interested. Next up is my friend, long-term practitioner, Vince Chelly.